Hello and welcome to the Open Revolution podcast. This is episode 9 as we continue to look at James Smith's run as candidate for Member of Parliament for Horsham in the next general election. Uh, is that close to six months away now? Is it? It's under six months away. It's not far away, yes. It's getting closer every day. <laughs> but what's interesting is, is that the campaign itself is only a month, isn't it? That's, there's sort of, there is actually a start date for campaigning, isn't there? There are two start dates, actually. So... Yeah, there's, so in terms of the regulated periods where you have to report your spending and things like that, there's the long one and the short one. So the long one starts in December. So okay. I actually have to report all my spending from December um, okay. and fundraising and things like that. Uh, and then the short one starts, yeah, pretty much a month before, six weeks before. Uh, it's when Parliament uh, recesses. So when they basically, you know, when we no longer have a government and the civil service just gets on with it by themselves. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that's, I, I have to say, I think that's a, that's a better way of having, uh, uh, being a keen observer of the American way of doing well, things. Well, Belgium uh, managed for quite a long time. So, well, you know. yes, and, and Be- well, Belgium's a basket case, I think we could all agree on that. Even the Belgians would cheerfully concede that one, I think. Um, one of the things that's happened recently is, of course, there's a by-election, was it up in Rochester? or Rochester and Strood, yes. Yes, and there's someone with an unfortunate name who got re-elected, <laughs> having defected to UKIP. Yeah. What was his name? Mark Reckless. There you the go. Guy. Uh, have, so have we had, I can't of... remember when we last spoke, have we had both the by-elections since then? I think we've, we probably have been. had both Yeah, so now we have it. two UKIP MEPs. So, yeah, fun times. Well, uh, uh, I think, you know, as disheartening as all that is, surely you've got to be rubbing your hands together because they are going to be saying some pretty stupid things that you can cheerfully and easily rebut. There are, yeah, I mean, there are many interesting things you can take from it. The first is that actually it does show that the uh, electorate are ready for something else, that they are willing to chuck out all the main parties and go a different way. I mean, by-elections are a different thing from general elections. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's for anyone not in that major party system, it's encouraging, I suppose, um, yeah. if you look at it in that way. Uh, from my own point of view, in terms of uh, policy and whether I think they're standing for the right thing, uh, no, not at all. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the potential impact on breaking open... Um, the that that sort of you know very closed uh, Westminster uh, cabal of parties, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. And I suppose it's quite interesting in, in that sort of UKIP um, were a brand have been a brand for a very long time before they got anyone into Parliament. And again, as much as you might find their policies or, or uh, postures frightful, there's something there to be learned in terms of getting people into Parliament. Absolutely. Um, you know, we know that this kind of thing takes a long time. They've been around for, what, 20 years? Maybe a bit longer. Um, I can't remember exactly. But, yeah, it does take a long time to build that profile to to get into the minds of people. But mm. then also, you know, we're seeing more and more examples across the world of parties coming up very quickly when they catch the public imagination. Uh, particularly the imagination of uh, of the young, of people who don't vote. Um, if you can access that, then actually you can make a big impact quite quickly. So, you know, there's there's hope that you can move quickly, but uh, there's also a realistic expectation that sometimes these things take a long time. 
I was it, I can't remember if we talked about this already, but there was a, a party in Italy that ran as a joke and got voted in very quickly. Yeah, was yeah, there was yeah five star in in Italy. Um, were yeah, the the guy was standing really not not entirely seriously, um, but yeah, they got in and. Um, so it does show that, that these things can happen. That's happened elsewhere um, as well. I'm trying to think of other examples. The, the uh, Podemos in Spain is doing very well. Um, mm. There are a number of others. Um, okay, well, we're going to... Uh, uh, listeners might be aware that there's been, a, again, an unplanned hiatus um, due to various factors, but um, we're going to continue looking at the manifesto in uh, boringly systematic fashion. Um, it can be found at openpolitics.org.uk and this week we're going to look at um, uh, two, can, two things sort of joined together because when I, when I had a look through, to be honest, they, they sort of blend into one another and perhaps maybe that's where you can start. Energy and environment, what's the difference in your mind in terms of what, what, what really is covered by energy and what is covered by environment or are they just part of the same huge blob so i think there are there are differences i mean if you think about them um without uh thinking about all the you know the the overarching stuff like climate change then energy is where do we get our energy from environment is how do we protect the natural world at the moment um given the problems we have to deal with the two are intertwined in certain areas there's a lot of environmental uh stuff that's not energy related you know um you know, uh, toxic chemicals, uh, a whole bunch of other stuff, uh, protection of biodiversity and so on. Um, and there's also a bunch of energy. Well, there's not so much energy that doesn't affect the environment because we are fossil fuel dependent. And that's yeah. really so the energy system has a big impact on the environment. So essentially it has to, uh, the, the two end up being very closely related, especially, at the, you know, as, as we, we see at the moment, we've got a, a government department, which is uh, energy and climate change. So, you know, they're essentially <laughs> together. So, so, so um, I, I think um, people who know you already will know you have very sort of um, copper-bottomed uh, environmental uh, credentials. You know, you're, you're someone who's very you understand climate change very well um and what it is you know that the that 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 humans are contributing to it um i think i mean for for a start i'm just curious to know as someone again who is not an in-depth observer of british politics is there much in the way of climate change denial in the uk or is that purely an american phenomenon um there is some there's uh there's certainly a, a group uh, around westminster mostly from the um uh, the traditionally right side of uh, politics um, that is, yeah, extremely denialist. It's not a big group. I think most politicians accept the uh, the, the scientific evidence uh, that this is happening and that we are causing it. Um, most of them, however, are pretty unwilling to do what needs to be done, um, and that's that's where it all falls down. So th- there's uh, there's a a little bit of denialism, but a lot of what I would refer to as inaction, hoping so that then, somebody else will deal with it. So then what needs to be done? One word. I mean, <laughs> one sentence. Just one paragraph. There we go. Uh, we need <laughs> what to, needs to be done? <laughs> we need to be emitting almost nothing um, as soon as we possibly can. The The science is unavoidable on that. It's going to be difficult. Um, but we realistically, we have to do it, unfortunately. Uh, but then, I mean, 
you, you, that's, that's interesting. I've, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say nothing. All the treaties and sort of international things that happen always say, let's go back to 1991 levels or 1988 levels or whatever, back to levels that we previously had. Yeah. You're, you're, you mean, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be pedantic or... or no, no, you should. You're, you're literally <laughs> saying zero. No, no, so, so there's, there is a... Um, we're, we need to get to a point where, from where we are now, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was pretty much zero. Um, I think there's a, there's a sustainable level of around about a tonne per person, um, which is about a tenth of where we are now. It's so certainly... A tonne per person per year? Or... Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, and that is substantially lower than 1990 levels um but that's you know if you if it's divided equitably across the entire world so you know with this is a lot of uh, different issues come into this um around development and uh, things like that as well um and so switching away from coal switching away from oil yep. switching to renewables and what's your posture on uh, nuclear energy? I'm I'm pro nuclear. Um, I think is that um, as a stopgap, or is that as a we can we can keep that going as long as it's sustainable and sensible? So first of all, I try not to think of nuclear as one thing. There are different types. There are uh, types that are better, types that are worse. Um, the current nuclear fission stuff we have, the uranium powered stuff. I think we can't afford to get rid of it. It's something that we have that does, you know, that emits a lot less in terms of carbon than, than the alternatives. And if we're going to move ourselves away from a wholly fossil fueled society, we can't throw away the other options as well. And this is why I have problems with things like the Green Party, who basically want to throw away our entire energy system and replace it all with renewables. Is that true, and though? that's I great. The, the, I, thought, I thought there were some fairly notable um, Green Party or. Um, uh, Greenpeace members who have now sort of come round to actually nuclear has to be part of the solution going forward. Um, there are. I mean, there are a number of environmentalists who who will uh, agree on this that nuclear is necessary. Um, uh, certainly, you know, in terms of uh, journalists, you know, Mark Linus, George Monbiot are both pro nuclear, um, and I believe rightly so. Um, in terms of official policy, I don't think any of the um, uh, the major green NGOs or the Green Party uh, will will accept it. Much like uh, things like genetic modification of uh, of anything. So um, I think you know nuclear power. You've, you've made your case. I think in renewables. Uh, I, I would imagine you know wind power, solar power. Uh, there is a certain amount of um, uh, tidal power uh, of that sort of nature, and that's. I mean, it's certainly certainly with regards to solar and wind. As that becomes cheaper to deploy, it becomes easier to deploy, and more there's more incentive because obviously once it's installed, then it's just a question of maintenance. You're not having to get a new yep. fuel or find sources of fuel to feed those. Um, where does natural gas sit on that spectrum for you? It's touted in certainly in the states as being, you know, as a byproduct of the fracking um, phenomenon. It's it's turned. Um, the energy situation in the states completely around where it used to be dependent on foreign imports now it's an exporter mm -hmm. yep. um, and natural gas is also credited in the states for reducing or at least contributing to a, uh, a reduced increase <laughs> of, of um, carbon output uh, is natural gas part of your 
solution? Um, I don't think it is, personally. Um, to, to look at the US thing, you're absolutely right. It's reduced their carbon intensity um, by moving away from coal to gas. Uh, but the other part of what you said also gives away the rest of the tale, which is that they're an exporter of energy. Yeah. And all that coal uh, goes somewhere else. And a lot of it's come to the EU, and our emissions have gone up because US coal, coal is cheaper, so we're burning it instead. So <laughs> fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that we have a certain limit to the amount of carbon we can emit and remain and have a certain you know decent chance of remaining on a habitable uh, habitable planet. Um, we already know in proven reserves of more uh, fossil fuels, more carbon, that uh, than we can afford to burn. Yeah. So finding more isn't going to help. Sure. <laughs> even if it's even if it, all it does is is push it out, and actually the amount of investment that's going into uh, things like fracking, the amount of time that's being spent on all the you know, on, on getting it all uh, through Parliament, the amount of political capital that's being spent could be much better spent on on something else, on moving us forward into uh, renewables or onto other forms of nuclear power like uh, this, this really interesting stuff going on in thorium power, um, which is a type of nuclear power that we've known about since the 50s, but because we wanted to make weapons, we didn't use it. Um, but it's much it's much safer, it's much less... Uh, less uh, dangerous and much more available, but you know it doesn't make weapons, so we weren't so interested. <laughs> um, well, I think you know we, we you go around this boy and you talk about what about this, what about this, what about this. At the end of the day, surely the the the, the question that needs to be answered is is how do you incentivize or change the incentives? Because that's it. It's if you make, if you give a choice to any person on the street between. A, two cars that perform the same and do the same function and go as fast as each other and equally safe and one spits out um, carbon dioxide and the other one doesn't most people I think um, would probably go for the one that doesn't but you know it, that's that's not a side that actually exists oftentimes um, it requires either a bit of investment or a change in lifestyle to a to, to change the consumption of um, uh, of energy uh, in an individual and in a population. I mean, how do you incentivize populations when it goes against their, you know, short-term interests? And I guess, you know, we're, we're really talking about China and India, where they want to use lots of carbon... I mean, yeah. in, in spite of the recent accord signed between the States and China... That you know they're they're still on track to be huge, if not the biggest consumers and ex, you know or uh, emitters of carbon into the atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, working at the international level is going to remain incredibly important to to do that. Transferring technologies um, to those uh, countries, everyone working together, right? You know, we we all need to, and and when I say we all, we all as a species need to accept that this is something we've got to deal with. Um, Obviously, here in the UK, we can only directly affect what we do, but we can take, you know, the uh, the the moral high ground, if you like, and uh, and say, look, you know, this is possible. We've done this transformation. You can do it as well. You don't have to go through this polluting phase that we had. We can transfer those technologies, and we can become 
a world leader in those technologies as well. You know, there's massive well, opportunity like for think, yeah, and there's massive opportunity for economic. But don't you think we've already missed the boat on that? Because, you know, that you know the Germans have done terribly well, uh, Scandinavians have done terribly well in, in developing these t- technologies. And this is stuff that, you know, you and I both had similar... I think we probably had the same chemistry teacher at one point, you know, uh, who was banging the drum about climate change when we were 12. And, you know, I remember being drilled into me, I, drummed into me. I remember very, very clearly that that was a thing back then. But here we are, close to <clears throat> years later, and... Um, we're t- the the same conversations are yeah. being had, yeah. and if anything, um, the consensus is a bit more diffuse, and uh, and the interests against uh, um, against the sort of pro environmental stance are um, you know, have been marshaled tremendous tremendous mm. effect yeah, yeah. against progress. Yeah, I I, I mean I I just. You know, I, I I agree with you. I think on on uh, on most points, but where I think we differ is that you appear to be a little bit optimistic, and I seem to be, you know, wanting to build a concrete bunker and getting canned goods. But sure, and um, yeah, well, what you're what the, the whole reason we're talking is uh, is part of my optimism on this whole thing that we can work through it, right? Um, because actually, if you give up on the optimism, then Yes, we do exactly what you suggest, and we build a bunker and we buy a shotgun, because that's the kind of future that we're going to end up in. Um, I'm not quite ready to give up on the optimism yet until I've tried everything, and and a lot of my career over the last few years has been oriented that way. We just keep trying until it is too late. Um, but I think what we need is we need um, governments and our leaders to really show that political will, to show that they that this is something that we need to do and to understand that somebody is going to have to make the hard decision. Somebody's going to have to do that that difficult thing. And we are a unique generation here. We're at a unique time right now because we know the scale of the problem. We know what we need to do about it. We know everything we need to know. We actually have the technologies we need and all we have, and so we we're in a better position than our parents, for instance, who didn't know about the problem when they were, you know, when they were the uh, the generation um, doing all this stuff, or who didn't have the technologies. And we're in a much better position than our children, for whom it will be too late. So it's yeah. us. It is us yeah. that have to do something about it, and we have to show the will to do something, because if we don't, then it will be. My children and your children that uh, that suffer, unfortunately, and I don't really want that to happen. I think on that point, um, I'll be in the um, environmental part of the manifesto, you've got sort of big, big banner uh, section headings: reducing carbon dioxide emissions, carbon budgets, subsidies, carbon rationing, international leadership. Number six on that list is home insulation, yep. and. I have to say this is a little bit of a, a hobby horse for me because I just think it's that is you know that and double glazing are incredibly simple mm-hmm. and straightforward. Absolutely. And, uh, um, British Gas uh, presumably uh, as part of some government scheme are offering free home insulation. I don't know what the ifs ands and buts are on that. That's that. I mean, uh, to me, that's a uh, that's a small bore solution, which presumably is meant to be part of an array of uh, other, you know, tweaks, hacks, things that. Uh, you can do at a very low level to uh, help 
everyone contribute to the solution. Yeah. Um, and, and and again, I think home insulation. I think that's you know that's a no brainer for me. And also, it's it's just it's good for the person on the street because it reduces their energy bills. Well, it's good for it's good for everyone. I mean, the you you, you know this this is this is there. It sounds you know it's next to international leadership in the list, right? And it sounds yeah. much smaller, but yeah. our home energy use is absolutely massive. It really is, and our housing stock in this country is terrible because most of it is you know old it's it's uninsulated it's um you know a hell of a lot of it's solid wall for instance and so you know a lot of the the sort of the simple things around cavity walls and things don't necessarily work everywhere but we need to invest in that and if you want to i mean if you want to stimulate the economy right if you want to push a bunch of cash into the economy um to get people uh, get people working get money in people's pockets Having some large government investment in uh, upgrading the the nation's uh, homes and insulation and things like that seems a really good way to do it. It spreads the money out all over the place. It doesn't put it all into a bank um, <laughs> where it just disappears into financial speculation. It puts money into the real economy. And I so, sort of, uh, I, I've said I called it small bore, and perhaps that's sort of slightly pejorative, but I think you understand my meaning. Are there other things like that? Because I always thought, you know, London black cabs, why aren't we? Why are they electric? You know, government buildings, why aren't they just absolutely just covered with yep. um, solar panels? You know, it, it seems to me there's there are lots of, you know, I guess initially quite intensively expensive, but, you know, that, that would then create a, a, a local industry that can then be exported, you know. Absolutely. Expertise. Yep. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. I mean, you're, you're you're quite right on that. There's there's a lot of stuff we can do. You know, uh, micro generation all over the place. Um, one of the problems there is the national grid, but uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that we we have everything we need. We can just do it. All it takes is the will and the focus from government on making it happen, as opposed to something like the the Green Deal, where you go through some. Uh, you know there are hurdles up front. You have to pay for an assessment up front. Then you can, um, you know, get a loan for a thing that will stick with the house. It's just complicated. Um, and you know, a bank that's uh, that's in trouble will get you know hundreds of millions of pounds dropped on it with uh, with seemingly no questions asked. Right. So if you want to get money into the real economy, it strikes me that actually doing the upgrades, the retrofit that we need to do. I mean, we have to do something like retrofit one house every second between now and 2050. That's completely off the top of my head, so it's probably wrong. But it's some ludicrous statistic like that. There is so much we have to do yeah. that this is, you know, it's a, it's a massive opportunity for, uh, for stimulus in, the, uh, in that real economy and for jobs and, uh, and everything. So, James, spending money we don't have. There we go. <laughs> That's, it's never... Uh, <laughs> it's never stopped us before when the uh, when the banks That's needed true. it. That's true. Uh, as ever, we're going to uh, end on our softball trivia question, where I try and lose another demographic for James. Um, what's your favourite? Who's your favourite author? Author. Ooh, well, that's a tricky one. Do I go with Douglas Adams or Neil Stevenson? Can I have both? Uh, you can have both, but tell me why for each one. <laughs> well, Douglas Adams because he's just amazing in all uh, in all ways. Um, 
whether he was you know writing things like Hitchhiker or whether he was commenting on technology or, or, or anything like that. He was generally just an amazing guy. I wish, uh, I think many of us wish he was still with us. Um, and Neil Stevenson, because he wrote my favourite book of all time, which is Snow Crash. I don't think I've read it. I think, I, did he write uh, Cryptonomicon? Yes. Yes, that's right. That, that, I remember just how long it took me to read that. I don't remember anything else. Snow Crash, but, is, uh, Snow Crash is really short and full of, uh, full of really good lines. It's probably not what you'd call serious literature, but actually, it's um, it's sort of in the cyberpunk genre, and it's written, God, in the nineties, I think, and it's many of the things that sort of its view of the future have, you know, have already happened or are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it has the thing about uh, uh, virtual states existing, so you can be a member of a state that exists all across the world. They have franchises and yeah. um, Estonia have uh, just opened up their program that anybody can become a citizen of Estonia over the internet. So, you know, wow. the future's here and uh, <laughs> and I've got a book about it. In that case, <laughs> let's hope they've got some, you know, pools results in there or something like that so I can... <laughs> I've checked. <laughs> okay, then. Well, um, thank you for listening and uh, for more information... Uh, about James's campaign, visit horsham.somethingnew.org.uk or the uh, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash somethingnewhorsham. Uh, or for more information about the manifesto, go to openpolitics.org.uk. A little bit of housekeeping. The new uh, Twitter handle for questions is at have some new with the hashtag open revolution. And you can ask questions of James and uh, they'll appear in subsequent uh, uh, podcasts if they're of course clean anyway thank you very much James and hopefully speak to you quite soon thank you very much cheers, cheers bye, bye.